Roman baths have been held up as a high point in the context of health and hygiene in the ancient world, and the whole practice of bathing is something seen as quintessentially Roman. But is this really the case? Were the baths a place of good hygiene, or did they supply the opposite set of conditions, in which you could pick up something nasty or make a condition worse? Join me and special guest expert Emma as we look at the bars in the context of health and hygiene and try to reframe how good for you the bars really were. What have the Romans ever done for us? Hi, and thanks for downloading. You're listening to Ancient History Hound, a podcast where I look at various aspects of antiquity. My name is Neil, and you can find lots of ancient history content on my website where I have links to my YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. It's www.ancientblogger.com. I'm also on Twitter as at ancientblogger. As per the intro in this episode, we're looking at the Roman baths and how hygienic they really were. I say we because I'm joined by my special guest expert, Emma. Hi, I'm Emma. I am a trained scientist, I suppose you'd say. I've got a degree in biomedical science and I'm doing a master's in infectious diseases at the moment. So I like science and I particularly like any sort of infectious diseases, anything that is a bit gross or a bit unusual that can cause humans to suffer. (laughs) Kind of my bag. Yeah, one thing I really learned from speaking to Emma is most biologists or scientists seem to have a favourite disease or a favourite something horrible. Yep. <laughs> um, it can make for an interesting discussion. I think it was around a year ago we did a podcast on STIs in antiquity and it ended up becoming two episodes and it's back there. So if you want to listen to it, please do so. Just download it. It's on the same place wherever you got this episode. I got a message from someone who listened. They made their teenage son listen <laughs> to the STIs in antiquity podcast. I don't know, I should say, if that's because... They thought this teenager could inherently do with learning more about that sort of thing, or whether it was just to put them off sex. STIs are a fascinating subject, and teenagers could always do with knowing more. I don't know about putting people off sex, but definitely equipping them with knowledge is is always useful. Knowledge and fear. In any case, I learned a hell of a load (laughs) about talking about STIs and different STIs, STDs. It was all about what sort of ones we have evidence for, how they might have been treated, all that kind of stuff. So it was a pretty pretty gruesome subject, but worth listening to after lunch. Or if you're a biologist, whenever you feel like you it. just don't care if you're a biologist. <laughs> if you have a strong stomach, it's fine. Uh, yeah. This feeds into a podcast I recently did on the history of baths or history of bathing and how it developed in Rome. We're looking at what sort of conditions the Roman baths presented to you if you're wandering around a major Roman city or Rome itself, in the middle of the first century AD. And I know you listened to it. Obviously listened to it the first time it came out, because I subscribed to you and I listened to all of your episodes anyway, but I had a little extra listen and made some notes. And the first thing that jumped out at me was that one of the first things that was said was that baths distract and emasculate men. Yeah. Which I quite... I quite, <laughs> I don't know why that, that amused me so much. That was something that uh, I believe Aristophanes in the 5th century BC said about Greek bathing. It wasn't particularly keen on lots of young men not being at the exercise yards or exercise places, the palestras and places like that, and instead going to these places. And it was seen as quite, I wouldn't say a feminine activity, but it wasn't seen as a manly activity in the Greek mind frame. And I know that is echoed later on when you have the Romans perceiving, and if anyone's ever studied Rome, you'll know that Rome is if nothing but crammed full of cranky old men telling everyone 
when they were young, things were much, much easier, much simpler. It was a simpler time and a better time. I think it doesn't happen now either. Maybe the bathing doesn't, but certainly people saying that things were better back in the day. But yeah, the, the difference between the Greek and Roman bathing I found quite interesting. But there were quite a lot of generic similarities. The, the idea that the Greeks even knew back then that warm bathing aided recovery and rest physically was, was an interesting one. Not that they necessarily knew the, the science behind it, but I wasn't expecting it to be that obvious. I thought it was more of a, a social activity. And obviously it was a social activity as well, but they were aware of that thing. And also that it was more of a gym health club than a bath as we know it now when you hear about roman baths i think in the current in modern way we think the word bath you think of a literal bath and so it wasn't just a hot room where someone bathed and had a chat it was you know there was the tepidarium is it and the yeah. frigidarium so all these different temperatures and everything it was kind of more of a a spa or a health club yeah vibe that was certainly something that i i expected there me to be more uh, submerging and that's not really the case mm. There was a, a number of different areas where you can do different things. There were some baths that later ended up having libraries in them. I think the Roman baths served that function as a sort of community node or community hub. Yeah, and that was one of the things that I actually thought and I wrote down was that it's a lot more social. So just to give you an outline of what we're going to do, we're going to talk about some of the diseases or illnesses or just, I suppose you call them, conditions that were faced or were taken upon by people in mid-first century AD Rome and how the baths may or may not have made them better. I do have a caveat of these are generally agreed conditions that were prevalent and we're going to look at each of them. And we're also going to talk about the hygiene of Rome generally. Yeah, anyway. there's a real misconception um, from a layman's part, as in mine, that these baths were this kind of pinnacle of health and almost spa-like as we, as we view them today, but... They definitely weren't like that. And in reference to diseases and conditions and things, they were set up almost perfectly for, for some diseases to exist or to be transmitted. So that's what we're going to look at. In fact, one of, the, one of the quotes I read put it really quite well. They posited the point that Rome was perfect for smaller diseases to get a foothold in because you had a growing population. You had a large enough population that had existed with new people coming in all the time conditions were created to allow certain diseases a foothold which perhaps they wouldn't have had in other parts of the Roman Empire. I think when you reference or when you're talking about the facilities and we automatically equate that means healthy, a good example of this is the aqueducts and the fountains in the city of Rome because you could have really quite nice fresh water brought in. But what if the fountains are polluted? What if you've got a point of contact issue? And this is seen in developing countries where you can introduce a, a water system to a, a place or location. But if you're not checking how people are accessing that water, you make things worse. And a good example, there's a facade. I, I, I seem to remember a facade in one of the, the water, water fountains in Pompeii. And it says, please do not pollute this with excrement. Because if you can imagine you're a Roman citizen or just anyone in Rome, there's a fountain in your district where everyone goes to collect water. If someone goes and accesses water from that fountain and they've not washed their hands, which why would they? There's plenty of animal excrement on the floor. If you then access that water and you pollute that, everyone visiting that point to get the water would also potentially pick up anything that you've transmitted into the water. 
And I think the Roman baths, in many ways, has this feature as part of it, and it needs to be respected. So you can make things worse by, in a way, make trying to make them healthier. If that, if that, I suppose, if that kind of makes sense. But anyway, I'm going to do less talking now and let Emma discuss the various things or various conditions that we agreed upon and see how they might have been made better or worse by the Roman baths. So take it away, Emma. The first thing I want to talk about is the difference between diarrhoea and dysentery, which is a, a fun topic and a fun conversation to have with anybody. But it's one of those things that people aren't always sure about the difference and they can be used interchangeably. But diarrhoea is a watery type of event and often things are spread by diarrhoea um, if ingested, whereas dysentery is different because it's more mucus and blood-filled rather than watery. So you may have diarrhoea that then causes a little bit of blood due to physical damage, but generally they are quite different. They are both good at spreading diseases, but they are different and they are different symptoms to different things. So it's just worth pointing out the difference between those two initially. And I think that's uh, that's a good point because there are references, in, in particularly in Marshall, about people going to the baths with tummy troubles. Yes. One, one in particular, I think he references someone washing their backside quite <laughs> vigorously in the baths. Now, again, we don't know if that was within the warm water he was sat in, although that is given as, a, as a, one of the remedies, I think it's by Celsus, mm. who says, go and sit in some hot water. Whether or not that would have occurred in the baths, we're not totally sure. However, we've got to consider the fact that you're a, an average Roman citizen, you don't have access to even running water where you live, so what you're going to do is you're going to go to the baths and perhaps you visit the latrines. The latrines were obviously often placed within baths and you had a bit of tummy trouble. And then you go and either you're sat in one of the rooms, you're sweating and you're washing yourself with the water in a, in a basin. Or you actually sat within one of the smaller sort of hot pools that were with other people. Well, one of the main similarities or commonalities in a lot of the diseases we're going to look at is the fact that it's fecal oral transmission so that means basically it's in poo and if it gets into you usually orally either via water waterborne or foodborne then you are more likely to to develop the disease so if you're going to wash your dysentery bum in some warm water that's not great particularly because warm water can be good for bacteria to grow depending on what else is in the water as well because bacteria need media to grow as well not all bacteria are successful to growing in water i'm not going to go down that path because the bowel trouble sitting in a hot bath it was sounded a bit like gastroenteritis which is a viral mm. issue it's known these days either as the norovirus or the rotavirus and it's very 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 infectious gastroenteritis is the inflammation of stomach and intestines. It's like a generic term, but it's used medically quite often to just mean the side effects of those viral infections. And it's vomiting and diarrhoea. And current NHS guidance actually says you shouldn't swim for up up to two weeks after having that, after your symptoms have gone, because of how contagious it is and how easily you can infect other people. So if somebody did have gastroenteritis and then they went to a bath because they'd been prescribed that, if it had been within two weeks of them getting better, they would still be infectious. And that's a really, really important point, is that a lot of medicine of that period was about treating an immediate concern. And there wasn't necessarily the understanding that these symptoms would have been manifested mm-hmm. at a lower level, uh, under the radar, as it were. So you can go in and think, I'm, I'm better now, but actually you're still infectious. And uh, you mentioned 
about the water and I think it's really important people don't quite always so again something I wasn't fully aware of am now if you were using one of those hot tubs I suppose they were they didn't have plug holes there was an overflow system and occasionally they would be cleaned and drained and they were also eating and you mentioned yeah the yeah the, I mean that's the thing if we look at gastroenteritis initially by itself it is not just food or waterborne because it is so infectious it's person to person contact as well out of all the ones we're looking at really gastroenteritis is the is the the one that i think would spread the easiest in the bath yeah. just because it spreads via the fecal route and also by the oral route and also by person to person contact and i find it very unlikely you wouldn't be having person to person contact and also the two weeks no swimming no bathing sharing water with people after you've been ill yeah i think a lot of people would leave it a week and probably be fine not even a week i don't yeah. know what the guidance would have been in those I days i don't think really there was no in, i'm in sure the sense. moment you stopped being ill people just carried went back to their normal lives yeah so i think out of all of them that would probably have been the most problematic in terms of infection and that's really important that you say about the person to person because we again we've got to remember that the bathing facilities would have incorporated lots of things where people were interacting with each other not just in the submerged sense or even in one of the hot rooms but if i'm in the exercise ground mm-hmm. and i say let's do some wrestling practice yep. or oh, yeah. if i'm having my eyebrows plucked or my armpits plucked or i'm visited by the barber which we know occurred within the baths or i've got i've brought in uh, some olives and i say do you want to share some yeah. and oh yeah i'll have a couple of olives and then you wander off don't see you the rest of the time there we go exactly and you know most people's immune systems in those days would have been not better than now but they would have had a lot more exposure to underlying pathogens in the case of gastroenteritis at least it is something that has been and will always be very very infectious it's just a very clever virus that gets in and gets out very quickly leading on from that another waterborne one that a lot of people are aware of is cholera cholera is a bacterial disease caused by the bacteria vibrio cholerae which is a lovely one of my favourites, to say. And See what I mean? They have favourites. Well, which is a nice words as well. It's an acute diarrheal disease, and generally it's eating and drinking transmission. It happens, it's a disease that comes up quite quickly and quite frequently after natural disasters. So providing you've got okay sewage and okay sanitation, cholera doesn't tend to happen. But any time, no matter where, whether it's in the developed or the developing world, if there's a hurricane or typhoons or earthquakes cholera will happen very quickly because it's just what we call an opportunistic bacteria and the thing about vibrio cholerae that i think would have worked very well in the baths is that there would potentially been an infection of water not just the water that you're bathing in but the water that perhaps is drinking and cooking particularly if people aren't washing their hands Mm. if they've got a bit of a diarrhea it's possible that people might have just had a bit of diarrhea all the time Toga's suddenly seen the bad idea when you consider all of this. <laughs> yes. You, perhaps that's why, though. Just, it's just massive toilet paper you're wearing. <laughs> but I had to look into how much water you actually ingest if you swim or if you spend a long time in, in water because you don't need to actually ingest much cholera bacteria in order for it to start making you ill. About 37 millilitres per hour of being in water is how much you physically swallow if you are swimming Mm. so i'm not sure how that would translate but i think it would probably translate enough if we want to estimate it that if you're spending all day in the baths and you're going in and out of places and getting splashed and i know and always being submerged but i do think that is probably quite a lot 
of ingestion. And so if there are bacterial nasties in the water, the chances are that people would, it would be transmitted. And also cholera lives in water. It likes water. So it's not a bacteria that possibly could be destroyed by heat. We don't know exactly how hot the water would have been in the, in the hot water rooms, as it were. I, I always equate even mildly warm water as killing everything. No, but no, that's, it doesn't. That's it doesn't not the case. All. What we're saying then with the Roman baths, if we had to say, do they accentuate the risks that we've talked about with dysentery, mm. with diarrhoea, with gastroenteritis and cholera? I think it's safe to say these weren't occurring exclusively as a result of the baths. No. These were already in place because the conditions were there for them to happen. Is there any way that we could posit whether or not the baths made them worse or reduced the, the instances? I wouldn't say that they reduced the instances. For, in terms of these diseases, in terms of cholera and in terms of gastroenteritis, in particular gastroenteritis, these are not conditions that are going to help. So we're, we're going to put this one down as made worse? Definitely made worse with gastroenteritis. With cholera, it is increasing the risk yeah. of passing it on. Okay. But again, you can have cholera bacteria in you and be fine. Some people are more genetically susceptible to being infected with cholera than mm. others. And so there are other factors that, that affect that. Up next then is malaria. Malaria is a really interesting disease and a lot of people have heard about malaria because it is devastating. I think it is the biggest killer in the world today and it has been for, for a long time. But it's not just one disease, there are several forms. Effectively malaria is caused by a, a pa parasite called plasmodium and there are different types of plasmodium that cause slightly different forms of malaria and a lot of people aren't aware that there are different forms. The main type of malaria that is in the news a lot and that has been in the news recently is caused by Plasmodium falciparum. And that's the one that they're managing to develop a vaccine against. But there are four others types of malaria. So Vivax, Plasmodium Vivax, Plasmodium malariae, Plasmodium ovulae, ovulae, sorry, I'm terrible at saying that word, and Plasmodium nulsi. Different mosquitoes may carry them and they also cause different symptoms. And the main thing that comes out in regards to malaria is that there are, they used to be classified before we were able to look at the different types of plasmodium and, and classify those according to the, their fever cycles. And what that means is that means the length of the fever because malaria, if you do or don't know, I'm gonna tell you anyway, it causes a fever, but it's not a continuous fever, it's a cyclic fever. And you can have a tertian fever which is three days, or a quartan fever, which is four days. And different forms of malaria caused by those different versions of plasmodium will cause those different types of fever. When people say malaria, there are so many different ways you can, you can chop that up. You can say, well, are you talking about it if it's been looked at by the fever length, the cycle length, or are you talking about it in regards to the, the parasite? Now, obviously, in the data that we looked at, or the, the information we looked at from ancient times, they talked about fever cycles rather than the parasites, because they wouldn't yeah. have been able to see the parasites in those days. They were driven by the visual symptoms. So if someone was repeatedly ill, then they'd measure the time scales involved. Exactly. And I suppose that's how they would have understand it or understood it. Exactly. And the thing about malaria that makes it such a problem is that it's caused by breeding mosquitoes. It's transmitted by breeding mosquitoes, rather. Sorry, it's caused by the plasmodium. And, but it's only transmitted by females because breeding females need blood to survive, mm. which is pretty hardcore, Yeah, <laughs> to be honest with you. 
In the case of Plasmodium falciparum, it's transmitted by the female Anopheles mosquito when she is breeding. Now, breeding cycles are more in the summer because of the heat, and mosquitoes love to breed in standing water. This is where we. This is where the problem is. If is the, the, the Tiber is flooding all the time, there's going to be standing water. You've got a cup of water, mosquitoes can breed in there. We're talking about all types of places. They can breed in large still bodies of water, they can breed in tiny still bodies of water. In developing worlds now, you've got malarial prevention teams going around making people make sure that tyres aren't on their sides because rainwater may gather in them and cause malarial breeding or even tin cans. Yeah, you know, soda cans have even been found to be able to be where malaria. So breeds, in a way, so. It, it might be the facility itself. What we're talking about, what we might be considering here is you've got a large complex and part of it requires water. We're thinking about in this situation, you're, 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 you need standing water that's quite dirty. Well, it doesn't always need to be dirty, but it's helpful if it is. And so you're looking at little puddles and little pools. Someone leaves a, a plate out or oh, a Oh, there's an M4 or two kicking around and they're stuck in a storeroom somewhere and they've got water in because they didn't bother taking it out at some point. If you've already got something wrong with you yeah. and you're not brilliant, underlying conditions, shall we say, you get malaria and it kills you off. Absolutely. It, it just so it's not the malaria that necessarily kills you. It is, I suppose, the straw that broke the camel's back. So one back. of the reasons that it is so such a killer now is because of, of, of in the developing world, it, children who have lower, you know, their immune systems aren't yeah. strong. Older people who have weaker immune systems, people who are immunocompromised, will have weaker immune systems, and they are more likely to die from malaria, mostly because of what it does. Without going into too much detail, it can it infects your liver and it infects your blood system, and so it stops them from functioning correctly. But also, it's difficult for your body to deal with a, a fever over a long period of time, particularly a repetitive fever over a long period of time, and that puts a strain on the body. And I was going to talk about in a while about the fever and and what sort of strain it causes, but that is why people are more likely to die. So if you've got a a d- disease like malaria which will cause this cyclic fever fevering for so long until you get better if you even get better because malaria can often stay in inside you and then s- crop up again later mm. then you are going to be more likely to die you're not really going to get malaria by virtue of visiting the baths no. however the baths themselves possibly allowed mosquitoes. i would i would go as so far as saying that the conditions around the baths would be a great breeding ground yeah, it, for opportunistic the we talked opportunistic yeah. earlier about cholera opportunistic uh, breeding for any mosquitoes the baths would have provided that definitely right what what, what have you got next for us what fun one i might as well talk about fevers now since we've been talking about mm. fevers because there was a whole thing about doctors saying go and sit in a hot bath and sort yeah, out a fever. Yeah, there were a few references by, I think it's Celsius, you had a fever, you'd go to the baths. So, Emma, was that a good idea? No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that's it, that's all I'm going to say. There we go, end just of no, podcast. Nothing. A fever is over, a temperature over 37.5 degrees C, just in case anyone was wondering. And they can have loads and loads of causes. So, like we talked about malaria, gastroenteritis can cause a fever as well, viral infections, many things. Effectively, your body makes itself hotter to try and kill any parasites or any bacterial infections that's the that's the basics behind what a fever is it's your body being quite clever and responding to invaders by going right i'm going to get really hot so everything dies but unfortunately it can end up Mm. killing you as well it causes generally if you've got a fever and you go and sit somewhere really hot it can cause heart stress now your heart will already be under stress if you've got a fever Mm. and so heart stress on heart stress 
is going to cause something very bad, usually heart failure or heart attack. Heart stress on heart stress. That sounds like <laughs> a really good band. So, or an 80s, 80s, album, 80s yeah. power band. <laughs> the control of your body temperature is from the hypothalamus in the brain. The hypothalamus detects something called pyrogens, which either come from inflamed body tissue that have been attacked by pathogens or from the pathogens themselves. But what it does is that then stimulates your immune system to react, and that's why your temperature, your core temperature, goes up. You get hotter and hotter and hotter, and then hopefully your bacteria and viruses that have infected you will not survive. And so that's that's the idea around a fever. But going to sit in somewhere hot when you already have a fever is going to give you a heart attack. So it's, it's effectively, it's not a good thing to do. We're assuming, again, that you're going to the baths to do that. You might also want to go and sit. Perhaps you want to go in the plunge pool, uh, go in one of the cooler rooms. But either way, we're assuming that that might have been the instance, in which case yeah. it's not a good. So I think for fevers, we've got I that I think down. sitting in the cool areas the frigidarium yeah plunge pool the plunge pool would have been a better way of dealing with it but really if you've got a fever you probably just need to sit at home and drink water yeah so yeah it's not a good idea so don't do that kids no say no to (laughs) say no to sweating out a fever unless it's just your body sweating it out so we're going to look at a disease that is parasitic now although malaria is parasitic as well this is a different sort of parasitic disease and it causes a condition depending on where you are in the world you will either have heard it being called amoebiasis or amoebic dysentery and it is caused by a parasite of the entamoeba family so it's an amoeba generally entamoeba histolytica it's got two infectious forms infectious forms are to do with the life cycle of the amoeba There are cysts and there are trophozoites, or trophozoites, excuse me, which exist, the trophozoites exist in diarrheal stool or dysentery stool. Those trophozoites would survive in water. So again, we're considering those warm pools, as it were, that you might want to sit in for a bit. Yeah. That would be, this is potentially the kind of breeding ground for that sort of thing. Well, not the breeding ground, but the place where it's going to go and enjoy itself waiting for someone else to come along. Absolutely. And the the thing about these amoebas that are quite clever is that the cysts, which are the the more successful transmission forms, another part of the life cycle, live in water, in food, and they can actually survive on the hands. Under the fingernails, they can survive for up to 45 minutes. And they can live in water for and food for longer than that. If you've got someone again... You're giving it the opportunity. Yeah. You're, you're giving... The baths, I suppose, give this sort of disease the opportunity to... It gives this parasite the opportunity yeah. to be transmitted, yes. And the other way that it can be transmitted, because of the fact that it can be fecally transmitted is through anal sex as well it's it's a it's a rare type of parasitic infection this and giardiasis that can be transmitted anally that gives us a segue into the next genre of disease the the next genre of disease is one that no one at the baths really has to worry about unless they're having sex in the baths and that's gonorrhea yeah gonorrhea is caused by neisseria gonorrhea which is my one of my favorites and again this is one of my favorite stis because it's very clever from a microbiological perspective i'm not going to go into it no we did cover this this was covered because it's referenced quite a lot in antiquity so if you want to hear more about gonorrhea and antiquity and why not then you can check it out on the podcast we did on but stis yeah. and antiquity i'm not going to geek out about how much i love gonorrhea however i'm going to say that almost every single sexually transmitted infection even if somebody is secreting sexual fluids into water, are not going to get passed on. So if I'm sat in one of the hot tubs, warm tubs again, mm-hmm. and there's a chap next to me mm-hmm. who has got gonorrhea, yep. I'm not going to... No, there is no concern in regards to that. They are sexually transmitted infections. It needs to be 
mucous uh, membrane on sexual fluid, mucous membrane on se- on mucous membrane. That is all you have to worry about. So baths do not assist. No. Other than being a place where people might be having lots of sex together, they don't. Yeah, we and, and again, this is something that we sort of referred to earlier. There is obviously that. I think uh, I mentioned in my previous podcast on Greek and Roman bathing in I think it's Pompeii. It's argued that one of the baths was actually a, had a brothel upstairs, and we know from Marshall that there are lots of things going on in baths. So really, the baths themselves, you're not going to get a disease, STI or STD, from going there, but it's just somewhere you, you couldn't end up hooking up, catching something. It's not going to give you But that's you not a, the bath's fault. You no, can catch you could, it anywhere. Don't blame the bath. Wherever you're doing it, you're going to get it. Well, you might get it. So yeah, any sexually transmitted infection, unfortunately, I'm not going to talk very much about because it's not that relevant in this situation. Mm. There are a couple of lung diseases that come up. So in regards to pleurisy, it's an inflammation of the membranes that surround the lungs and line the chest cavity. And it's usually caused by a virus or a side effect of another infection. It's nothing that would be caused or nothing that would necessarily breed or be transmitted in the baths. Okay. Hot air might help soothe the symptoms of pleurisy, but really it's one of those things that's a bit holistic in that oh go and breathe some hot air in and relax you might feel better there's no curative purpose from going into a hot pool or a a cool pool or anything so pleurisy did exist but it was probably a side effect of other infections and really being at the baths may have made a a slight difference in terms of someone's feeling better but there was no cure i wonder to what extent the baths exacerbated particular types of condition involved in the lungs simply because in the some of the criticisms and i think it's cicero i could be wrong complains about the modern baths having windows being much more aired and he says the good old days you had your baths and they were dingy and you just had oil lamps and very sooty and one of the considerations regards this i've read is that there was a lot of soot in the housing of ancient Rome because people were constantly burning things well simply for light and if that's the case and you go to the baths of I say the earlier versions of the baths you're encountering more of that you're you're sat around breathing in lots of burnt uh, substances and I just wonder if that had that might cause well, well there is a disorder called anthracosis which is effectively coal dust in the lungs or any kind of pollutant but it needs to be a lot of burnt stuff so these days you wouldn't get it so much but in those days coal dust oil lamp any kind of dust or smoke it's a chronic lung disease it does exist now but only really with people who work in particular i imagine miners people who used to work in the mines yeah that kind of thing i mean it's kind of in the realm of asthma and, and copd which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease it's known as black lung disease or miner's asthma ah, okay, as well. Yeah. And effectively, there's no cure for it. It's palliative, that's all. So it's possibly made worse yeah, by Yeah, the baths, baths and saunas wouldn't help at all. If, if Yeah, if, if you're if going you're, to yeah. lots of... And I, I think, again, we need to consider what type of baths you're going to. If you're going to these really nice, fancy, open-air baths that have got lots of windows, less so. If you're going to the oldie type of baths where it's you know dark rooms with oil and you can sit around them, you're not getting away from it, put it that way. It wouldn't be the only place you'd, you'd experience those sorts of conditions, but at the same time, it's not going to help. No, exactly. And the, and the last one, which the baths would not have helped in regards to, or would have actually helped a lot in regards to the transmission, is tuberculosis. Yeah. This is something, when I was doing my initial reading on it, tuberculosis pings a lot when you're looking up a disease in ancient Rome. Yeah, I mean, out of the two, 
the two things that would be most contagious, like I said before, was gastroenteritis from a viral perspective and from a bacterial perspective, it would be tuberculosis. It's caused by a bacteria called mycobacterium tuberculosis and it's person-to-person airborne. So it's an airborne, but it's it's transmitted very, very easily person-to-person. If you spend lots of time with somebody, you're more likely to get infected. The only thing is that someone must have an active TB infection, but that just means that they're coughing up the bacteria. And so if you've got somebody who's got tuberculosis, who's been told to go and sit in the baths because they're not feeling great and they're next to someone else and they're coughing, the chances are they are going to get tuberculosis. You, you get it a lot in developing countries in situations where there are lots of people living together in crowded situations and yeah. in crowded housing which is perfect for a particular demographic exactly. in ancient rome where you'd have people living in small very small rooms lots of them in a, in a i suppose condensed living and I, I do remember reading and i think it's Pliny, one of Pliny's letters and he says one of his freedmen he sends on a on a bit of a cruise because he starts bringing up blood, he starts coughing up blood, so he sends him out for fresh air, as it were. And I think that's a, a we, again we don't know, we couldn't diagnose the guy, but we would think that mm-hmm. that's possibly tuberculosis. Exactly. And the other thing that's quite interesting was when I was looking into this is that something swimming pool injuries are more likely to increase the frequency of TB transmission as well. Any kind of scrapes or cuts in water, for some reason I couldn't find out why, but there were enough medical scientific okay. articles on this to say that if people are scraped or hurt in water and they're around people with active tuberculosis they're more likely to get it not just pulmonary tuberculosis but other forms of tuberculosis does as this well. have to be this the actual injury has to occur whilst you're submerged well they called them swimming pool injuries but i think it's any injury that is fresh and, and then, in the water because just to clarify on swimming pools what we consider swimming pools weren't really that present in antiquity the the pools weren't that big i think there's one in one of the pompeian baths has is at 12 12 meters by eight meters and it's one and a half meters deep so these aren't grand large swimming pools as a general rule obviously the larger baths the really big later imperial baths might have had them these weren't now what, what i'm thinking here is they did have exercise grounds they had places where you could catch ball, mm. wrestle, yeah. do all sorts. So if you're doing that and then going, and then the yeah, and then you get yeah. so you get a bit of a bit of a bruise, bit of a cut from some rough and tumble, and then you go and submerge yourself, mm. and you've got a cut or a wound or just a graze, like you say. But the other thing is, the idea, is, as far as I could tell from the reading I did, was that swimming pool injuries are hurting ourselves on the sides of swimming pools. Right, so, so that's you're where you're probably it would more be. likely to do that if you've got a smaller area that you're bathing in or plunging yeah, in. Yeah, possibly so, again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so fair play. yeah, from a TB, several ways you're more likely to get something or c- c- catch it if you are in a in a bath. So so far, the baths. Just to recap, they're not doing brilliantly. No. They're either recreating existing conditions, which weren't particularly hygienic, or they're making ones far worse. Yeah, I mean, they're not necessarily making it worse for the individual, but in terms of transmission of of things, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then we'll move on to one that it doesn't affect at all, because we've done one already with the sexually transmitted infections, and it's rabies. I'm pretty sure it's Celsus who advises that if you get rabies, one of the treatments is to go to the baths, and keep the wound open where you've been bitten and make sure that you let the, the poison ooze out. And I think that was a great example of how unhygienic the baths could be because that could cover a number of situations. Mm. And in fact, 
we have other other commentators saying don't go to the baths if you've got an open cut because you can end up getting infections and gangrene and, mm. and and all sorts. I don't know if they refer to it as gangrene, but but yeah, I mean the advice in regards to letting the the poison leach out it's quite an interesting one because rabies is caused by the rabies virus. Mm. You can tell that was discovered quite recently because it doesn't have a fancy name. No, and it doesn't travel in your blood system. It it goes into your nerves mm. and it takes a while to move up to your brain, which is when it causes your the hydrophobia, yeah. which is the fear of water. So so you can't bleed out from your nerves. So the moment the infection, the virus gets into your nerve nervous system, that is it. You can't, you know, bleed it out. Not that you can really bleed out any disease, but yeah. th- there's no logic there at all. But of course, they weren't probably weren't even aware of the nervous well, if system. You, if you think of, if you think about much like if you're bitten by a snake, they're aware that there's yeah. uh, envenomation there. That there's a process or something going into you. Perhaps it was thought people bitten by dogs that are a bit crazy. Mm person then becomes crazy it must be something the dog gave the person which yeah, I mean, is then that's 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 perfectly logical but my, my point is that it's quite an unusual yeah. disease in that it does travel in the nervous system and if you are bitten by a rabid dog listeners go to the doctor and you can get treatment because what you do is if you leave it for too long and you don't get treatment then you will die it, something happened very recently a, a guy in morocco got bitten by I, oh was it a kitten someone who got bitten by a kitten and um he apparently he went to the doctor a few times and they didn't give him the the rabies vaccination or they might have then realized he did have it and gave it to him way late but you can get vaccinations even after you've been bitten which will stop Mm. you from dying but it's if you leave it and you leave it sam fox who was a musician and and glamour model got rabies really yeah and um but she was how did she get that was it again bitten by i think i think it might have been a bat oh oh that that is that's a frequent oh Um, no yeah bats carry loads of stuff I mean I don't think we've ever talked about Ebola but bats are, are reservoirs for very very many diseases they're, they're incredible animals because they can just have it they can just have everything they can have malaria they can have Ebola they can have rabies if and you're going to sleep with a bat wear protection <laughs> in, in essence rabies you need to be bitten I never thought of citing this example because of rabies itself it also pointed to the fact that people were going to the baths if they had those kind of Ill- injuries. Yeah. You know, the idea of if you had an open wound, go to the baths. And it's not always the case because we do have contradictory advice on that. But it was still that idea of the baths being seen as a place to go and heal. Mm. So how do you mis- mix the, the ill and the sick? Now, it is suggested that but some baths had uh, opening hours, particularly in the morning. If you listen to the last podcast I did on the Greek and Roman bathing, generally speaking, most people would go there in the late afternoon. And the idea was in the morning in some baths people who were ill would go so you'd have kind of people go in there which in itself is pretty scary because if you go there and you've got one particular illness and your immunity is is below where it should be and you're just getting exposed to a whole bunch of other possible yeah it's either going to make you super immune or you're going to get super ill <laughs> yeah what have we got left have we got um, any more we've got typhoid to look at and then we're going to talk about activities in the yeah virus. so what with typhoid typhoid is caused by a bacteria salmonella typhi or salmonella paratyphi depending on which type it is and it's, which type of typhoid which type of typhoid it's spread from people with active infections person to person also fecally as well what's interesting about this one is you can have an active infection and feel fine so contaminated food and water and sewage and by sewage we don't mean the sort of sewage you might imagine but anything that has any kind of fecal matter it's very it's very contagious and so typhoid leads to fever and you can eventually die effectively that's something that would 
transmit quite easily. So that's another one to put on the top the top three that we have. I think it's typhoid. It's one of those diseases that's often cited as the plague of Athens, which happened at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War in 431 BCE. You can talk about activities, something by virtue of being an option at the baths, which can make a condition worse or just make you generally ill. So two things that I wanted to talk about were having massages and hair plucking and also drinking heavily. Massages can cause lymphatic drainage and might dehydrate you and then you could get further dehydrated by going and yeah. then sitting in a hot room. But generally massages don't ha- carry that much infection risk at all. No, I think the, the massages, you've got person-to-person transmission. Yeah. you've got lots of touching. It, this wouldn't have been the option in every single bath. Again, we're not talking about standardised menu that would have occurred. It, we know, I think there's that letter that Seneca writes about living next door to baths and he's part of it he says about he can hear people being pummeled and slapped by the masseurs <laughs> he can also hear people having their armpits plucked and whatnot, and screaking, uh, shrieking and screaming and it just goes to show that the sun baths had, had a really large number of options to go there I mean I mentioned it again in the previous podcast about you go there and get a lawyer you, there was it was a real social kind of mm hub as it were so the massage is possible make things worse yeah i mean in a, in a small amount but in terms of plucking you can get a condition called folliculitis which is inflammation of of hair follicles and that can cause quite a nasty infection so it could be an infection risk it can eventually lead to septicemia and death if it doesn't get treated and these days it's treated with antibiotics so it is something that would have could have happened that could have mm. ended up with people dying if your hair follicles get infected particularly in certain areas where hair is plucked ingrowing hairs in in the pubic regions so under your arms and in your groin are more prone to folliculitis and so if those areas are being plucked and there is an infection risk there so you know if you if you get everything plucked and then you end up going into a pool where perhaps you you get a little bit of an infection a little bit of bacterial infection that can then cause quite a bad infection which can go systemically throughout your body and kill you could we could we do drinking heavily you went from that very quickly i yeah. know i, yeah, I was really can, fascinated we can by this. do drinking heavily tell there was a woman was it with the juveniles three gallons fast yeah or something. she went who went there again this is quite a difficult one to understand fully juvenile references a wife various types of wives and one of them goes down to the the baths simply to cook herself and build up a three gallon thirst and then she hosts a dinner party and it doesn't go well Sam, effects of alcohol after effectively dehydrating yourself really quite heavily. Well, the, first, the first thing would be dehydration. Dehydration, yeah. which is caused by alcohol anyway. So if you are already dehydrated and then you dehydrate yourself even more, it can lead to heat stroke. And heat stroke is effectively an inability to main correct. Sorry, an inability to maintain correct blood pressure. A lot of people don't really know what heat stroke is, so that's quite an interesting yeah. one. But yeah, your blood pressure, you, your body just can't maintain blood pressure because you don't have enough water in your body. And what that tends to cause is a cardiac arrhythmia. So your heart stops beating correctly. Your body then just basically starts to not work. Mm. So rarely, I think, that you'd ever have someone going to the baths, drinking heavily there after being dehydrated, who didn't have something else, any other existing condition, far worse. Yeah, because it's going to put, you know, if, you, if your blood pressure's low, it's going to put pressure on your immune system. And your immune system's not going to be working properly. So if you are then come into contact with another disease you are more likely or will be more likely to get it because your body won't be able to protect you against it and something i was always told is even as a kid and as an adult if you're ill drink plenty of water yeah exactly. it's the absolute opposite of what's undertaking here 
So, so far, really, we've painted quite a dark picture regarding the baths. I don't think we've positioned the baths as being that panacea to, to life's ills. I think it was Mary Beard who made this point. If you were someone of meagre means and you lived in Rome, you wouldn't be living in a particularly nice place. You wouldn't have running water. You may not even have natural light. The baths offered you somewhere you could go full of people you could meet. Yep. You might be able to look at really nice sculpture, paintings, friezes on walls, all of these sorts of things. And it just might be something that lifted you in some ways. It's about mental health, which is very much but it's in like the holi- modern... Holistic well-being is, is a thing that, that is coming into the forefront, even from a scientific perspective. It is, you know, if you are happy, if you are positive, you are more likely, to, you know, to, to be well. This wellness, and I hate that term because it's been kind of co-opted by a lot of diet companies to try and sell things. There is an argument that if you are mentally well, you are more likely to be physically well, which I presume yeah. is what you're trying yeah, to say. Yeah, absolutely. And it might have been. A lot of these people, as I said, and I don't want to push it too hard, we always look at Rome often from the perspective of the rich, the elite. And I'm talking about the poorer citizens, again, who lived in a single room or a couple of rooms. They didn't have much of anything. You go there and you've got your friends, you can exercise, you've got a safe area in some contexts to to just enjoy yourself it would have helped you in that context yeah i mean i think from an overall perspective you know we're we're talking a bit doom and gloom in regards to the the ways that things could be transmitted but it obviously wasn't the transmission hellhole that i'm kind of painting it to be because otherwise they wouldn't have carried on going i'd always had it to be that panacea that thing that you put roman baths in a city or a town everyone's healthier and that's really not the case so i think much of what we've been discussing is just been trying to reposition that and sort of counter that a tad but at the same time emma's absolutely you're absolutely right if these things were the worst thing you could do if these were vicious disease hell mouths then <laughs> yeah of course because that would just wipe out entire areas and i think also with rome you've got to give rome a bit more credit because it was a huge place we had a, a large populace we have difficulty in giving estimates but it could be up to a million mm-hmm. or thereabouts by the middle of the first century ad and of course if you've got that many people even with really hygienic conditions people are going to get ill they're going to spread disease and yeah, of and, and things are going to happen that aren't, aren't nice diseases evolve so that they are able to be spread and transmitted in in clever insidious ways so the fact that they are spreading doesn't mean anything necessarily so in the in a sense of jerry springer's jerry's final thoughts jerry's final thoughts. i think that the roman baths are or were less hygienic than television led me to believe they were yeah but not as bad as they could have been yeah i think that's i think that's <laughs> pretty pretty fair and I, like most things there's some good some bad yeah, and also, again, we're talking about a wide variety of bathing establishments. From what Marshall says, there were some which were just really, really dirty and disgusting, and others which were considered far more clean, far more beneficial, mm. shall we say. Like gyms today. Yeah, pretty much like gyms today. People, it, they didn't have what I would call a, a settled audience. They were competing with each other. Mm. And it wasn't in your best interest to kill large numbers of people who are going to come no, to your exactly. baths. Because most of the baths would have been private establishments. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do that. Nope. So again, what we're doing, though, is we're offering a slightly different perspective. Do you have anything more to say on... No, no, I just thought it was really, it was really interesting. It was, it was interesting. I learned a little bit more about parasitic infections because I'm more of a, a viral bacterial type of girl. So that was quite interesting. But no, I just I thought it was, it was an interesting idea just looking at 
adding a bit of science to your ancient history. Well, I really welcome it. And I, again, thanks very much for coming along. If we can think of other subjects to grace people out with. Yeah, we'll, I mean, if, uh, if anyone has any ideas or, or disagrees with anything I've said or has different thoughts themselves, there could be people out there who are also scientists. So it would be really interesting to hear what they've got to say politely, obviously. Yeah, you can always get me <laughs> go on Twitter at Ancient Blogger. Always feel free to say hello and give me any kind of feedback you can do. Yeah, but if there's anything else, any other areas of things that you think my expertise, so to speak, would be useful, then... Well, I thought perhaps after mentioning the plague of Athens, we could, at some point in the future, look at likely contenders for yeah. what that might have been. Because yeah, be that was really... It's, it's a very, very interesting and somewhat horrific point in time for a lot of people. And you know how much I like horrific diseases. I just want to say thanks again to Emma. Thanks for coming along and talking and educating me, certainly, and scaring me. <laughs> As I said, I'm always happy to hear any kind of feedback you've got on my podcast so tweet me at ancient blogger if you want to visit my website it's ancientblogger.com if you're listening to this on any place that you can leave a review please leave a review i don't do it enough i've got to be honest with you i should do it more i love leaving reviews i really it really helps <laughs> but only leave good reviews yeah only only five star reviews please. yeah if you if you liked it leave a good review if you hated it leave a good review because we're not far from christmas and santa is watching you until next time keep safe and stay well bye infamy infamy they've all got it infamy <laughs>